0: The Oboe by Robert McMinn. Chapter 11, Thursday, 10th of November. Ronnie reversed into his parking space on Thursday morning and was glad to have done so when he found another midwinter item in the morning's post. This time it was a reference to a letter written by the subject, as the memo called him, to an academic journal in response to a paper published earlier in the year Subject had written in connection with a paper on climate change published by the American National Research Council. In the letter he expressed concerns about the relaxed attitude to global warming in the article and discussed recent developments in photovoltaic electricity generation. Ronnie had to think a bit to work out what photovoltaic meant and realized given the time frame of academic publishing that Midwinter had probably written this letter long before the surveillance on him had been stepped up. He date-stamped the new item, and when he returned to his desk, placed it in another internal envelope. Then he made a coffee and settled down to work. When he paused at about half past nine, he noticed that Melody had turned her window flower to face down the street, which meant that the one o'clock meeting in McDonald's was on. He was impatient and restless for the rest of the morning, expending a lot of nervous energy, and was also very hungry by the time one o'clock came around. He grabbed his coat and set off for the fast food restaurant at the bottom of the street. As he queued to order his food, he looked around and noticed Melody standing near the entrance, already carrying a brown McDonald's paper bag. He ordered his food to take away. As she saw him coming towards her, she turned and walked ahead. And so he followed, at some distance, until she reached the shopping centre exit at the town square. The weather was fine, if cold, and he joined her in sitting on a bench outside the library. They both dug into their McDonald's bags. "'I don't know what you see in this stuff,' she said, without looking at him. "'What are you eating?' Fillet? That fish thing that made a mess on your tie? Is that all you ever have or something?' It's the only thing I've tried since it opened. Adventurous. Yes, that's right. I'm too stuck in my ways to try something as radical as a cheeseburger. Melody laughed and unwrapped her own cheeseburger. Actually, I am getting worried, he said. I think there's something addictive in a filet. I wanted to ask you something, she said. Go ahead. Who's George Strait? Ah. Thanks for the bean casserole, by the way. You're welcome. I don't suppose you'll explain how you came to break into my flat. I didn't break in, she said. I finessed my way in. So who is George Strait? You've been looking through my record collection. Interesting taste. Then I came across this guy in a cowboy hat. She was grinning. I like my country music. Have to order a lot of it in and pay a fortune for it, I'll have you know, which is a rip-off because they're only about half an hour long. So he's some singer. From when? From now, said Ronnie. So what, you just walked into a record shop and decided to buy a record with a cover like that? I get recommendations from my second cousin in North Carolina. Your second cousin is into this stuff. How did you get into it? She was brought up on it, and she's a bit older than me, about your age. She came over to stay once when I was 14 or so, and she writes to me now and then. She sent me a mixtape with some Graham Parsons and John Prine on it. More people I've never heard of. So you rely on your cousin to keep you up to date? It can be a bit hit and miss. Her tastes don't always coincide with mine. I pick up a copy of Rolling Stone magazine now and then. If you read it really carefully, including the tiny one-paragraph reviews, you occasionally glean news. And I know a guy who works in a record shop. He shows me their catalogue and I order stuff that looks interesting. We've got a kind of underground network going on, but it's mainly my second cousin. You'll have to play me some. I'm intrigued, she said, digging into her fries. I'll do you a mixtape when I get the chance. A tape, she said as if the idea had never occurred to her. Oh yeah, of course. I look forward to it. Have you considered buying a CD player? They're out now, aren't they? They're ridiculously expensive, said Ronnie, and I've got so much vinyl. They'll never catch on. There doesn't seem to be much point. It's not as if I'll buy my entire record collection a second time. Have you got one? Hmm? Well... Yes and no. Not yet. But I will have one for a while. They ate without talking for a few minutes. Melody, looking around them carefully, as if checking to see if they'd been followed. Ronnie, wondering why some of the things she said didn't seem to make sense. Eventually, she said, So, your car was parked backwards this morning? Yeah, there was something from yesterday, and then another thing today. She waited, saying nothing. Ronnie continued, Yesterday there was a memo from whoever it is following your father. They noted down all his daily routines, from reading the papers in the library, to getting pick and mix in Woolies. They also took note of everyone who visited him at home, and they saw him getting coffee on the market. Ah, he does love his cappuccino. That Italian stall is great, you should try it. She sounded curiously light, unconcerned. And this morning there was a note, a reference to a letter he'd written to an academic journal about climate change and solar energy, which is what he does. It's as if someone wrote reports about you eating a filet of fish and listening to George Strait LPs. That's what struck me. It's pointless and banal, but at the same time it's sinister and frightening. They lapsed into silence. Ronnie decided to change the subject. Anyway, what were the beans in aid of? They were delicious, of course, but it would have been even nicer to share them with you. I know, but you're busy in the evenings and I hate the idea of you eating nothing but filio fish for lunch and chips from the chip shop for supper. It's a life, fairly vegetarian. So were the beans. I guessed you might be a fishaholic or didn't eat meat. I'm not fussy, but there's never anything in the house. Uh, Perhaps I'll go shopping for you next time. Anyway, I've got to go. Don't follow me. And she stood up to leave. As she walked away across the square, Ronnie realised that she hadn't really turned directly to face him. Anyone watching might have observed two strangers passing the time of day, but not making eye contact. He waited a few minutes, then walked back into the shopping centre and around to the exit at the bottom of King Street. Back in the office, he made a coffee, then settled out to work. Mel phoned just before four and said she wouldn't keep him off to work but might pop into the factory again that evening. Having assumed all day that he wouldn't get home till after five anyway, Ronnie took the scrap of paper on which he'd written Midwinter's address when he left to go to his car in the multi-story. He had a fair idea of where the house was, though he lacked a map. He set off in the right direction, not his usual route home, and found the 1960s housing estate where Midwinter lived. He then drove around for a while looking for the right street name but failed to spot it. There were a lot of quite mature trees providing shade and obscuring those street signs that weren't oriented in the wrong direction for Ronnie to see them without craning his neck. He found he needed to consult a map after all, but didn't have one in the car. He decided to go home and performed a three-point turn frustrated with himself for wasting so much time. On the way, mindful of his conversation with Melody, he stopped at the supermarket and bought a few things for the kitchen cupboards, including a baguette and a package of frozen kippers. Back in his flat, he put the food away and heated up the remainder of the hot Boston beans in the oven while he showered and changed. He then started to root out his records and plan a mixtape for Melody, He opened up a new TDK AD90 cassette and decided on a Lucinda Williams track for the opener. I lost it from Happy Woman Blues. While the track was playing, he went to get the beans out of the oven. For the next half hour or so, he ate beans and bread in between swapping records and pausing the tape on his NAD system. George Strait, John Prine, Nancy Griffith, Emily Harris, Rodney Crowell, And the Judds formed the bulk of the playlist, with the odd Reba McIntyre and Roseanne Cash song thrown in. By the time he'd recorded the first 45 minutes, he realised he was late. He dialed the foreman's office number at the factory. Jim picked up. As the keyholder, he was the only one who was really authorised to be there. Hello. He sounded nervous. It's Ronnie. Sorry, car trouble. Running late. You started without me. Uh, We're just about to record the drum track. Okay, I'll be there as soon as I can. He looked at his records, strewn about the floor, and decided to leave them there. He grabbed his keys and his coat and left for the factory. On the way, he considered the possibility that the band could record most of the songs without his input. He could overdub his lead vocals and guitar parts at some later stage. He couldn't shake the feeling that this was going to be the last thing he did with the band. They had no more gigs lined up, and nobody was putting any energy into booking some more. They had three choices. Give up, get a manager, or bumble along as they were doing now. Two years before, Ronnie would never have believed that he'd become so disengaged with the band. Being in the band was one of the main reasons he hadn't gone to university when he left school. Now, before he would have been old enough to graduate, he was contemplating giving up, and the band didn't have a permanent name. As he arrived at the factory, he decided to forget about these thoughts, and shook off the feeling of ennui that had come with him in the car. It occurred to him that his life was just a little bit too complicated, with the two Mel's as he had started to think of them, and he was just looking for less obvious ways to simplify the situation, when the easiest thing to do would be to drop Mel, or Melody, or both. Mel arrived about half an hour after Ronnie while they were involved in mixing the rhythm section down to three of the eight available tracks. Ronnie broke off to check with her. She seemed happier this evening and encouraged him to get on with it. This third night of recording went as well as the first two, though it was complicated by the presence of The Boy, who arrived shortly after Mel to supply an electric piano part to the song they were recording using his DX7. Ronnie didn't like the boy, who was arrogant and a bit of a museo. The problem with properly trained musicians was that they tended to suggest complicated solutions, like odd time signatures or overwrought musical arrangements. The problem with the boy in particular was to get him to do less. He was always trying to play additional notes. Ronnie left Steve and the others to deal with him and the recording of the DX7's electric piano sound and went to sit with Mel. "'You're not in this bit?' she asked. "'No, I'll only end up getting into a row.' "'Who is that guy?' "'The boy?' "'Steve's brother. It's his keyboard we're using.' "'Why isn't he in the band?' "'He's a bit of a jazzer, a muso. "'He wouldn't lower himself to play this kind of stuff normally.' "'He paused. "'Anyway, how are you tonight?' "'Better.' "'Paul phoned before I came out, wanting to come round.' I told him I was going out and that he should stop calling. Okay. Felt good doing it, too. What are you doing at the weekend? The plan is to try to record two or three songs each on Saturday and Sunday, which would take us up to nine, including the three we've done so far. We're not doing anything tomorrow evening, though. Dave's lending some microphones to a friend who's doing a wedding. Do you want to do something then? Like what? Film? It's a bit late for booking the NFT. We could slum it at the ABC, I suppose. What's on, do you know? Educating Rita? Hmm. Let me think about it. Ronnie wasn't keen on films about the transformative power of education. Mel didn't know what else was on at the two local cinemas. I could see if we could book something at the NFT and pick tickets up tomorrow night. What's on there? I want to say that one of the films on is tender mercies, but I'll have to check. That sounds more like my kind of thing. Yeah, they've got some kind of season going on about washed up country singers, she said archly. It was time to get back to work on the record. They worked for about 90 minutes more and then started to pack away. Before she left to go home, Mel promised to phone the National Film Theatre box office first thing in the morning and let him know. Ronnie drove home, thinking about the two Mel's. I'm leading a double life, he thought. He stayed up till gone midnight, finishing the mixtape for Melody.